We all need a reset from time to time. Our phones need to be powered down in order to work faster. Our computers sometimes need our cookies cleaned out in order to avoid that spiral of death as I just experienced a few weeks ago and required my tech support slash husband Andy to help me. Some resets we experience are forced upon us from hard news. If you get a diagnosis of cancer, you have a massive reset. You have a vocabulary, a whole new vocabulary you need to learn. Your health appointments get priority in your schedule. Sometimes there's changes in your diet or in your stress level. Now resets can be from positive experiences too. When a couple gets married or takes a new job or has a child join their family, their life gets rearranged. They re-examine their priorities and what really matters. Think of it this way. Maybe you've been to a beach this summer. It's one of my favorite places, being at the beach. And when you first plop down your towel and your water and whatever on the sand and you go into the ocean, it's super fun. You're enjoying, you're playing in the water. And then after about 20 minutes, you look up and you can't find your chair or your towel, you have slowly drifted to one side without even realizing you've drifted from home base. And every once in a while, you have to look up from the water back to shore to find your home base, to get your bearings, to get your reset. I think it's safe to say that we are in a reset right now. Several months into the coronavirus and two months post George Floyd, we're a little more comfortable with uncertainty and upheaval. We're more comfortable wearing masks in public, but the fact that I'm speaking to you through a camera and that you're listening to this from your home or wherever just shows that we are in unusual times still. Back to normal is not our reality and in some cases may not ever be. Or as I repeatedly hear, these are unprecedented times. As people of faith living in unprecedented times, we look to the Bible for help. And you may be surprised to learn that God's people have faced unprecedented times before. This ancient book has much wisdom for us. We're going to look this morning at a huge reset God's people faced thousands of years ago to see what we can learn. Let me first describe their situation. The prophet Joel describes it for us in Joel chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days? Translation. These are unprecedented times. Or in the days of your ancestors, tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. We're going to be talking about this year for a long time from now. In fact, our grandchildren are going to be doing uh, interviews with us for their history classes to know what it was like to live during the year of COVID. COVID is an invisible enemy for us, but for the people in Joel's time, they were very visible, their enemy. Verse four, what the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, the other locusts have eaten. Now, we're talking about a locust plague here. And I think locusts or grasshoppers are like many things in life, 
fine in moderation. One mosquito, fine. One spider, one rat, one snake, whatever. But a swarm? I think of camping in the boundary waters and uh, TripAdvisor giving us warnings, you know, this campsite, as soon as it's dark, just hide in your tent. There will be a swarm of mosquitoes. You don't really believe them until you experience it. Swarm is not good. Swarm of anything. But a swarm of locusts or locust plague, this is crazy for us, but it was fairly common in the ancient times. In fact, the Hebrew language has nine words for locust. That should tell us something. Their uh, locusts were bred in Sudan, prevailing winds carried them up north, and we actually have numerous descriptions and reports of infestations of locusts in this particular geographic area of the world. There was a reporter named John Whitting from National Geographic magazine in 1915. He describes an influx of locusts in Jerusalem and Syria. And when he's writing in 1915, he refers back to Jerusalem in 1865, which was known as the year of the locusts, like the year of coronavirus. Now, the four words he used to describe the, the locusts are probably not four species. It's probably different stages of the life cycle of the locusts. Short entomology lesson, these locusts would fly in, eat a ton of vegetation. The females would lay eggs, and I'm talking lots of them, in a square footage about this size would be estimated 60,000 locusts. That's not even in including the 30% loss rate of the larva. So once those guys hatch, they're crawling upon the ground, devouring everything in sight. They eat their body weight in a day. Uh, and so the different stages, uh, the, those different locust words are describing the different stages. So basically, that amount of locusts has left nothing. They have eaten everything, these poor people, uh, the land they are living in. Joel 1, 11. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. There is no food left. And in fact, um, there's not even food for the church people, the priests, to present offering. Imagine if we had no food to celebrate communion. That's what we're talking about here. And in poetic style, as uh, the, the prophets do, Joel 1, 7 says, it has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. And if that sounds familiar, vine and fig tree are this idyllic image of security, prosperity, that phrase even has carried on down to today. I want to sit under my own vine and fig tree for all you Hamilton fans. Now, as we're learning, this is all interrelated. So the economic implications for these people who are dealing with this locust swarm are going to be felt for years. There's deforestation of the trees. Uh, there's no wood supply. There's no shade from the trees to provide support for the crops. And some native trees in that area, like the date tree, take 20 years before they bear fruit. So there are both immediate and long-term repercussions of this awful disaster. Sound familiar? Unanticipated seemingly out of nowhere, severe disaster, ruining resources, and affecting every sector of our society. 
And to top things off, the situation goes from bad to worse. I won't read all these verses, but Joel 1.10 says there's also a drought. And then because of the drought, Joel 1.19 tells us there's a fire. This reminds me of the weeks following Memorial Day, just when we thought it couldn't get any worse with coronavirus. Then George Floyd and the looting and all that happened. That was true for these people during this time. Joel 1.12 says, surely the people's joy is withered away. So that's their situation. Now, what is Joel's interpretation of that situation? Well, it's that this is to be a wake-up call for them to get their lives back on track. The locust plague, in fact, Joel says, is to serve as a sneak peek or trailer for the day of the Lord. So Joel says, yes, things are bad now, but they will be much worse when God returns to fully establish his rule for those who are not walking with God. Now, this day of the Lord, he references in John 1, or Joel 1.15, the day of the Lord is near, is a phrase the prophets use a lot. And it's this day of reckoning. It's this day when God will defeat evil, when God will bring justice. Justice for George? You betcha. God will bring justice for the nation, for those struggling, for those oppressed. He will set the world right. He will usher in his new order of love and mercy and justice and peace when he returns. And this is both encouraging and sobering. It is encouraging to those being wronged. And it's meant to be sobering to those who are wronging others. Things do not go unnoticed or unseen by God. It is not as if he's missing what's happening now. He will one day execute his justice. So Joel says, despite how it feels, you are not actually in total chaos. God is actually still in control. He will one day set this world right. And because God is the one in control, there is hope. There is a way to avoid this destruction and no life. And so the entire book of Joel pleads with the people for a reset, for a coming back, for a return. You've drifted from shore. Come back. Just the first few verses, if you look at them, hear this, wake up, mourn, declare a fast. Joel 2, 12 and 13, which we'll come back to, says, return to me with all your heart. And the book gives a sneak peek if they do this reset rightly, if they do indeed return to God, there will be restoration. Joel, 1, Joel 2, verses 25 to 27. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locusts swarm. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed then you will know that I am in Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. Joel is saying that if the people will return, God will restore. 
And in fact, if you look closely at Joel 1 and 2, every negative consequence that is there is met with, uh, with the positive. If you're hungry, you will be full. If there's no harvest, it will be abundant harvest. Now, Joel does have a bit of an elastic sense of time where he, he goes from the immediate uh, restoration to the future, long-term restoration when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. But the message is clear. If you repent, there will be restoration. Now, Joel, as one of our 12 minor prophets that we're looking at in this series, saw a close connection between the people's sin and the locusts. What are we to do with that? How are we to interpret our events today? Now, I would not go so far as to say that coronavirus is punishment for sinful behavior. It is not that God has caused coronavirus to get our attention. It is not that we have caused it by our behavior or actions or sinfulness. Anytime we look at scripture, we always interpret scripture with scripture. We look to other passages to understand. Two examples let me give you that uh, push me in this direction. One, John 9, Jesus is walking by the side of the road. He encounters a blind man and the disciples say, Rabbi, who sinned? This guy who's blind or his parents? And Jesus says, neither of them sinned. Second example, the entire book of Job exists in our Bible to show that not all suffering is the result of someone's behavior. In fact, Job suffered even though he was righteous. And the entire message of the book of Job is sometimes we just don't know why we're suffering. So I, I, don't, I, think, I don't think that coronavirus is punishment for sin. However... We have to interpret all of scripture together. And in our understanding of God and theology, we are often holding two tensions equally true. And I would say that is true in this case. On the one hand, we are in a fallen world. Bad things happen. And they are not always for a reason. They are not always for punishment. It is a result of living. All creation is groaning in this fallen world. And... We can use hard, bad things to help us grow, to reset. And that is what I believe Joel is asking us to do. Use unprecedented times as an opportunity to return to the Lord. The truth is we always need a return. This is the human condition, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This is why many of the prophets we're looking at in this series, Amos, Haggai, Zechariah, Hosea, all have this message returned to me. Um, and we need this message in good times and in bad. In bad times, the message is returned to me. In good times, in the Old Testament, you'll see it's remember me. Don't forget me in the good times. And so in these difficult times, Joel 2, 12 to 13 tells us how to return to the Lord our God. Joel 2, 12 and 13, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Joel then speaks for God saying, rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. In order to return, we need to do two things. One, wake up, and two, return. 
wake up. In times of stress, you know, our body has this fight or flight reaction. Fight. We get angry. We get frustrated. We want to rebel. We resent the limitations put upon us in this season. Or flight. We just want to drown it out. We just want to get away. We just want to binge watch. We just want to drink alcohol. We just want to whatever. I was talking with a friend early on uh, during coronavirus, and um, she was saying, I don't even struggle with alcohol, but even I want to get a drink at night. I understand why people succumb to this. It's actually interesting in the book of Joel, the only specific behavior mentioned uh, is in Joel 1.5, wake up you drunkards and weep. I think that's because it's a great image. Wake up, come out of your fuzzy thinking, sober up to what is happening here. Friends, there is a danger right now, not just for our physical health, though that is real, not just for our economic health, though that is real. It is for our spiritual health. Will we see this experience as a way of including God and re-examining all that matters to us, where he fits in our lives as we seek to rebuild? Are we striving to just get back to normal? Or are we going to take this as an opportunity to recalibrate and be open and examine and seek direction from him? So wake up and then return. And Joel 2, 12 and 13 says, return sincerely. Rend your heart, not your garments. I don't want outward change. I want real inward change, God says. So whatever you're thinking about, don't just talk about it. Act on it. Back it up with real action. And this includes every area of our lives. We're seeing this. We're having to ask the questions, what matters most to us financially? What are we going to spend money on when the, when the bank account is tighter? Time. How do we choose to spend our time? Some people have more time. Other people with young kids at home have way less. How are we going to be intentional with the time we have? Relationships. How will we be intentional about the relationships we want to choose to invest in? Maybe we need to invest in those closest to us, and we haven't for some time. Our overall desires, hopes, goals, what are we arranging our lives around? And where does faith fit in in the midst of this? Is faith for us just showing up at church occasionally so our kids can get taught morals and we can feel like we can ask things of God? Or is our faith something more? that we're going to strive to in this time. I think of two people I know. One's an executive chef in the Cape Cod area who worked 70 hours a week, who was furloughed right away in the midst of this. He was devastated at first, and now he is ecstatic and thrilled to be working for the post office, able to have a relationship. Uh, he's not married yet, uh, that he couldn't have before. I think of parents who are in the throes of reconsidering do we want to do travel sports or is it just hurting quality of life for our family? I think of people using this as a reset financially to spend less, to pay off bills, pay off debt. If, here's a question, if we want to use this time as a time of reset, how do we even know what God's way is to return to? Well, 
the Bible gives us the most uh, guidelines. And no, not every part of the Bible is clear. Some parts are harder to understand than others. But a remarkable amount is pretty clear if we would just read it and engage with it. There's also a huge gift of learning from other people who have walked with God for years to ask what they're doing. If you are someone who has been walking with God for a long time and you want to invest in someone who is newer to faith, I would love to connect you, even remotely, even social distance style, with someone who could benefit from how you have lived out your faith uh, in mentoring others. So I want to challenge each one of us this week, just pick one area, just one. Don't be, you know, just one. Where you have a niggly feeling, to quote my British friends, that, that you need a reset in that. Maybe it's use of alcohol, maybe it's time, maybe it's relationships, maybe it's money. I don't know what it is for you. But just one area, I want you to think about what a realistic way to take action would be, not just words. And then I want to encourage you to enlist some help and support around that um, because we're all weak. Now, if it's time for a reset, some of you may be feeling like it's too late. God probably doesn't want anything to do with me. And I have good news for you. It is never too late to return. You will never be disqualified from his grace. Joel 2.32 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We can always return, not because of us, but because of who he is. And Joel 2.13 and 14 gives us more insight into who he is. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger abounding in love. That, those phrases are used a number of times in the Bible. They may, you may be hearing bells in your ears, but one place is Exodus 34. And I find so much encouragement from this because where this, these phrases God uses, this self-description of himself to his people, is right after they have royally messed up. They were in Egypt, they were suffering, and God delivered them mightily. Interestingly enough, the eighth plague was a plague of locusts on the Egyptians, and God delivered them from that, called them to, herself, to himself, did wonders, and then they're walking around in the, in the desert, in the wilderness, and they forget. They forget his goodness. They start building. They take off their jewelry. They melt it in a fire, and they build an altar to a golden calf, just like the people they had lived with had done. And um, Moses comes down and says, what are you doing? And, and God gives them another chance. And what he says is, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Our God is not rationing his forgiveness quotient. You cannot max out on his grace. There is no limit. He is a prodigious God. Think prodigal son, prodigal father, prodigious, meaning uh, lavish. He disperses grace recreationally. He loves lavishly. He is painfully patient with people. Thanks be to God that he is. 
Psalm 103, 4 is high as the heavens are above the earth. So great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed his trans our transgressions from us. Who wouldn't want to return to that? Who wouldn't want to trust this one who knows us and knows what is best for us? Now, because this God not only loves us and extends grace to us, he is also over all. See, one of the things that's hardest for us about this year, and frankly continues to be, even for us on staff trying to make decisions, we are not in control. And actually, that has always been the reality, but we get really good as Americans at deceiving ourselves that we are in control. But Joel urges his peers in these unprecedented times, return to your God who loves you, who wants to do what is best for you. And Joel's message still applies for us today. So let us wake up and return to our God. One of the outcomes of this, Joel, God says through Joel in Joel 2.27 is, then you will know that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. You know, it's really interesting. For many of the prophets, we know something about their lives. We know something um, that can help us understand who they are. And we don't know much about Joel at all. We know one or two facts and one is that the name Joel means Yahweh is God. The Lord is God. Maybe that's because that's really all we need to know in what Joel is trying to teach us. It's time for a reset, friends. Or maybe more accurately, it's time for a return. The Lord is God and there is no other. Let's seek in this crazy, unprecedented time to rebuild our lives on him. That years from now, we would not just say the year of 2020 was the year of COVID, but we would say it was the year we returned to God. It was the year we got some aspects of our life together. It was the year we got serious about pressing into our faith. And it was the year that we grew deeper in our sense that the Lord is God. So let it be. Amen.